Sir Henry Bolt here. Have you changed your mind on the little desert issue, or are you waiting for a more political, a no, politically no, favourable time? I've never changed my mind on it. As a matter of fact, the desert proposal, in all of its ramifications, I believe is selling itself. As Sir William Macdonald says, the little desert sells itself. And from the conservationist point of view, not enough is known about the little desert. Some people say you have a passion for land development. Is this right? The report of the Land Utilisation Advisory Council would not deter any minister from allowing the desert to be opened up. I, now, I, know, I, know, I know there are other experts, uh, self-constituted experts, uh, who disagree with this. Welcome to the Little Desert Podcast Project. Brought to you by the Victorian National Parks Association. Supported by Parks Victoria. My name is Jessica Hamilton. And I am Bethany Atkinson Quinton. was certainly uh, an issue and uh, had a considerable effect uh, on the Dandenong by-election. Would you, you agree with so? that? I, I'm not so sure. 1969 was a very exciting and eventful year in Victoria. A number of ideas and events came together to create something very significant. In this episode, we'll start to unpack the history of the political dispute that led to the permanent protection of the Little Desert and its diverse and beautiful flora and fauna. Actually, a small conservation reserve had been established near Nil back in 1955 to protect the rare mallee but this only covered 218 hectares of the Little Desert. The 1968-1969 controversy resulted in an additional 34,000 hectares of land being protected for nature conservation. But the Little Desert dispute also resulted in many other conservation outcomes, it changed the Victorian political landscape by putting nature conservation on the party political agenda. It all began with the proposed Little Desert Settlement Scheme by the then Victorian Minister of Lands, Sir William Macdonald, in 1968. It was an attempt to further the settlement of Australia's semi-arid land. Although it's called a desert, the Little Desert is really a green island of natural vegetation in a sea of mostly cleared farmland. It is fair to say that Sir William Macdonald and the Victorian Premier of the time, Sir Henry Bolte, would not have expected to stir up such resistance from conservationists and the wider public when they proposed the Little Desert Settlement Scheme. The scheme included building a road through the Little Desert and establishing 80,000 hectares of farmland in an area that was simply known to locals as the Scrub Country but a community alliance was formed consisting of city people and Wimmera locals, as well as economists, natural scientists and nature enthusiasts. This was the Save Our Bushlands Action Committee. At around the same time, concern for the natural environment mounted around the whole country. In 1967 in Queensland, the Save the Reef campaign was born in order to oppose the government's plan for mining of the Great Barrier Reef. In Tasmania, in the late 1960s, public criticism rose against the building of three dams on Lake Pedder, only to be followed by the Franklin Dam controversy, which became a nationwide issue in the late 1970s and 80s. 
In Victoria, the Save Our Bushlands Action Committee generated public pressure by organising two major public meetings in 1969, each with more than 1,000 people attending. It also produced a barrage of letters written to the editors of Victorian newspapers. In addition, public pressure about the Little Desert triggered a parliamentary inquiry into the proposed development scheme with daily media coverage. And at the centre of all these activities were two women, Gwyneth Taylor, the president of the Victorian National Parks Association at the time, and Valerie Honey, who had grown up in the Wimmera. They were among the lead campaigners for this cause. All this activity influenced the 1969 by-election in Dandenong in Melbourne South East, resulting in a 10% swing to the opposition Labor Party. In the long term, the Little Desert controversy shifted the political landscape of Victoria and made way for a new form of public body to influence environmental policymaking in Victoria. The dispute about the Little Desert clearly played into additional political outcomes for the Balti government. In 1970, Sir William Macdonald lost his previously safe seat and Bill Borthwick was appointed new Minister for Lands, later Conservation. Under Borthwick's guidance, the Land Conservation Council, or LCC, was established, led by public service experts with community involvement and with the aim of providing transparent, non-political and scientifically informed advice to the Victorian Government on public land conservation. Bolte resigned as Premier in 1972. His successor, Sir Rupert Hamer, was also from the Liberal Party, but was much more interested in and concerned about nature conservation. The Hamer government continued to pass further environmental reforms like the National Parks Act in 1975 and the creation of the Environment Protection Authority in 1974. Returning to 1969, another key feature of the campaign against the Little Desert Settlement Scheme was the relationship between Valerie Honey and Gwyneth Taylor. The campaign and its success are indebted to the work of these two women. Gwyneth Taylor, the then President of Victoria National Parks Association, or VNPA, was an outspoken advocate for nature conservation in Victoria. Valerie Honey, on the other hand, was more of a lone campaigner who had no previous connection to any natural history society. 
Honey's connection to the Little Desert was her childhood memories of growing up in the Wimmera before moving to Melbourne. In an interview with historian Libby Robin, Valerie Honey described her life in Melbourne prior to the Little Desert dispute. I wasn't in the National Parks Association or anything like that. My whole life was... I'd gotten married and had four kids to look after and that was it. But Honey was also an avid newspaper reader and on April 28, 1969, she read about McDonald's Little Desert Scheme in a letter to the Victorian newspaper The Age by Gwyneth Taylor. Reading Taylor's letter was the spark that got Valerie Honey fired up and she decided to do something about it. Taylor explained in her letter that the Little Desert Scheme was economically non-viable and also stressed the amount of environmental knowledge that would be lost forever through the proposed development because flora and fauna of the Little Desert has never been fully studied before. Once Honey heard about the development scheme, there was no holding her back. She joined the VNPA and collected 4,000 signatures for a petition against the scheme. Together with Taylor, she presented this petition, along with scientific evidence, to the acting Premier of Victoria, Sir Arthur Ryler. It was through Taylor's letter to The Age that these two women met and became key players in the campaign. Campaigning together resulted in a friendship for more than 20 years after the Little Desert Settlement Scheme was abandoned, even after the Honeys moved away to Canberra. The two women were instrumental in the formation of the community group Save Our Bushlands Action Committee, which was supported by the VNPA and the newly formed Australian Conservation Foundation. The committee set out to increase publicity for the protest against the development of the Little Desert. And the rest is history. Now we will hear from Malcolm Calder how he remembers his own personal involvement in the Little Desert dispute. Hello, I'm Malcolm Calder. Um, I am a retired botanist. I was in the Department of Botany at the University of Melbourne from 1966 through to 1990 and I think in 1969 or thereabouts I probably became a member of the National Parks Association and joined their committee. How do you remember the time of the Little Desert Dispute? It was a time of great dynamics in terms of government and the community. The government had for a long time taken total responsibility for allocating land use on the advice of their departments. There were some decisions that government made which were counter to the need to protect and preserve some of this land. The VNPA became very concerned, particularly Gwyneth Taylor, who was president at that time, and also the Australian Conservation Foundation, which had fairly recently been established, was also concerned. And I think the very first thing was that they called a meeting at the Clooney's Ross House, which is where the headquarters of the Australian Conservation Foundation was, and we had a sort of a a really thorough work through the issues and what was being done and how we might start to oppose it, and we decided to form the Save Our Bushland Action Committee. That committee had no membership, it had no authority other than it represented the activities arm of the combined Australian Conservation Foundation, the VNPA, and a lot of the members of the VNPA were also members of the Bird Observers Club and the Field Naturalists Club and and all those other associations. So there was a strong backing behind the VNPA, which was a sort of focus organisation for that development. 
What did the Save Our Bushlands Actions Committee set out to do? We set out to present a case to the government that it was necessary to protect and preserve this land and stop its development. The development involved an east-west road running pretty well through the middle of the little desert and the establishment of 10 or 15 farms that were being proposed. And this road was going to divide the little desert into two and the land was going to be alienated and put into private ownership for the purpose of growing wheat or growing wool. At that stage the agriculture department at Melbourne University, a Professor Lloyd who was the economist there, made it quite clear that his view was that these units that were being proposed were financially non-viable and the environmental people realised that it was biologically not viable. We had great support from both the economic argument, which was a big help because politicians understand economics, they don't necessarily understand environment. What kind of actions did the Save Our Bushlands Actions Committee carry out? We held a meeting in the Melbourne Lower Town Hall. There were a large number of people at this Melbourne Town Hall meeting. We advertised and promoted I don't know how much money we made, but it was a, a substantial sum of money was gathered that night and gave us the feeling that we were really being supported by the broader community as well as being able to argue strongly for the case. And then subsequently, when the government was showing signs of modifying their approach, we held a meeting in the St Kilda Town Hall, which again was very well attended, huge numbers, and Peter Atterwell and I and others spoke at this meeting about the importance of retaining the little desert, having in the meantime taken a group of students out there for one of their May vacation field trips, and we'd studied various parts of the little desert. So we were speaking with a basis of both commitment and experience, and we felt that uh, it was a message that was well received by the public, and and obviously the politicians were rattled, as it were. Would it be fair to say that the Save Our Bushlands Actions Committee changed the way the community approached nature conservation? I think we demonstrated that it was possible for community groups to get up and argue logically and sensibly against a proposal that government was coming forward with. We knew that many people who were advising the government privately had very severe doubts about this project but they were tied by their civil service rules into not speaking out so we felt that we had a responsibility not only to present the case but we had the responsibility of forwarding the information that we were able to get from departments that things were not as they should be or as they could be or as the the minister particular was thinking they will be. Public confrontation was absolutely essential to convince the government that its processes had to be changed. And it's a state issue. It, it, it never was a federal issue. And that there was a different view of government responsibility and land use that was coming through. I think the outcome is that there is a process now whereby you can have your views presented and considered. They may not act on those views, but that, that's the process. In what ways might we learn from the Little Desert Dispute? Would you say that key elements might offer a template for today? It was a program of its time. 
I'm not sure that one would do exactly the same thing again in today's environment. There were processes set up for the allocation of public land, and that was the Land Conservation Council, which was first set up early 70s, I suppose, and I became a member of that subsequently. The Land Conservation Council went through the state, region by region, absolutely thoroughly, and determined the value of every square metre of land in these regions and made recommendations to the government, many of which were accepted. And we had a minister who was appointed by Mr Balty, Bill Borthwick, who understood some of the background to this. He was a Wimmera man or had grown up in the Wimmera and was was aware of some of the issues there and was very, very committed to establishing this Land Conservation Council, which was another arm of the community program by which the Save Our Bushlands Action Committee had done its job of raising awareness and it was subsequently the, the committees of inquiry and the processes of persuasion to and, and presentations to the Land Conservation Council which carried the day. So the process was very different and the Land Conservation Council no longer exists although it, it, its successor does. So what do you think it was that stopped the Little Desert Settlement Scheme? The combined argument of the economists, the argument of the environmentalists and in particular the by-election where a fairly safe Liberal held seat was lost to the government and it brought it home to the government that this was an issue that had political consequences as well. So I think that helped change the argument and then there were committees of inquiry and we had to give sworn evidence at committees of inquiry about the importance of these, the area and the whole tide was changing. It was just a broad sweep. There were farmers down in the Little Desert area who were sceptical of it at least and, and some were strongly opposed to it. I think there was a certain amount of persuasion that was coming from their own supporters very strongly. Would you agree with me if I said that scientific evidence was central to the Little Desert dispute, that science can be used to persuade? That's absolutely right. The Land Conservation Council used to contract people to do particular studies to answer certain questions that they needed answered before they made recommendations. And so the scientific approach became more important and more valuable, and the development of understanding of the ecology of the Victorian forests and their different types was part of that. It brought into focus the importance of understanding the environment much more than we did. We were just trying to protect the land from being destroyed, as it were, but we didn't have a lot of information, and now there's so much more information. The work of natural scientists had until then been considered non-political, Would you say that your personal involvement with SOBAC and the Land Conservation Council has changed your perspective on that? The real problem is that scientists are judged by the publications they produce. It's a matter of numbers, as it were. And therefore, involvement in public debate, advising governments and so on, is very difficult to measure in terms of the effort and time you put into it. I'm certain that, in my own case, 
I failed to meet criteria for research production, but I believe that I played a role in broadening the understanding of science to the wider community. Science is tremendously important, but scientists are measured on different criteria and they are loath to make dogmatic statements because there's, in science there's always a question, is this so? So I, I was a scientist and I was a concerned citizen because I had grown up with a real love and involvement in the natural environment. And it seemed to me that the way that the politicians and the political process and the community was going was neglecting the values that these natural areas have. So it was as a concerned citizen that I got involved at that level, I think. We're entering the very interesting area of defining value for land and in particular conservation values. Would you say that the work of the Land Conservation Council helped to broaden the ways we might define the value of land? Yeah, I think so. There is a strong feeling that land is there to be utilised and to produce food, fibre, building materials and so on. And that is true. We all use timber, we all need water. But I certainly feel there's a growing view that land in its own right is important. And it's very difficult to get that argument across to people who measure things in terms of finance and productivity. But I think the recreation issue is important. The fact that it is uplifting to be able to go out into the bush and listen to the wind blowing in the casuarinas and the parrot screaming overhead. These are issues that are part of the human soul, I think, and it's important that these be nourished as well as our bellies filled and our shelter provided. This was Malcolm Calder, retired botanist from the University of Melbourne, member of the Save Our Bushlands Actions Committee, as well as former president of the Victorian National Parks Association and member of the Land Conservation Council. In our next episode, we will further unpack the many outcomes that came from the 1969 Little Desert Dispute and the work of community-led networks like the Save Our Bushlands Action Committee. This is the Little Desert Podcast Project, brought to you by the Victorian National Parks Association with the support of Parks Victoria. Narrated by Jessica Hamilton and Bethany Atkinson Quinton. This podcast series was produced by Jan Hendrik Brogmeier with project management by Caitlin Griffith. You can find us online at vnpa.org.au and parkweb.vic.gov.au. We acknowledge that the Little Desert lies within the traditional lands of the Wachabalak, Jadwa, Jadwajali, Wagaya and Yapagalk peoples. And we pay respect to their elders, both past and present. <laughs>